Welcome to Conversations About Government in Iowa. This Iowa Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by the Fiscal Services Division staff. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. The following interview was conducted on Tuesday, August 1st, 2017. Josie Garretts of the Fiscal Services Division of the Legislative Services Agency interviewed Lee Tack, former Division Administrator with the Department of Education. The conversation included a look back at Mr. Tack's proficient career before retirement. Welcome to this edition of the Legislative Services Agency's production, Conversations About Government. My name is Josie Garretts, and today I am talking with Lee Tack, who is a former Division Administrator with the Department of Education. So our first question this morning is, how long were you with the Department of Education, and what made you start there? Well, I was with the Department almost 36 years. So I started there in fall of 1970, and I retired from the Department in 2006. How many roles did you serve in during that time? Oh, I had a variety of roles. I'd written a proposal for the department for funding a project to evaluate driver's education and develop a curriculum. So as a graduate student at Iowa State, wrote the proposal, got funded, and I was about ready to graduate and they offered me a job to direct that project. So I started as a project director. My background is research evaluation statistics. Mm -hmm. So ended up uh, after that project, what was called the research specialist. And we did a lot of data collection, data analysis, and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, back then, the approach to collecting information was very different than it is today because you were doing a lot of paper type of collection, mm -hmm. and you weren't doing the types of analysis that you're able to do in LSA, obviously. <laughs> but I was a research specialist, then eventually became a project director again, then I became a bureau chief, and eventually became a division administrator. So I held a number of different positions over time. Which of those different positions do you think was the most interesting or challenging? When you're young, <laughs> everything's challenging. So starting off, it was really kind of learning the culture in a department, learning the culture in government, and how to get things done. It's probably just as true today. When you come in and you come out of a college or university or graduate school, you have certain skills and background and so on and you'd like to be able to apply them, but the people that are working there have been doing things differently and didn't quite see the benefit of doing the changes, especially in the area of information technology. And that would be just as true today if I'd go back to the department and I think see how things are done today compared to how they were when I was still there. We started with mainframe computers, and you don't yeah. see many mainframe computers anymore. <laughs> so the approaches are, are very different. But however, being a division administrator, having a lot of different responsibilities, of having several different bureaus underneath me, mm -hmm. that was probably the most challenging. And then as you get to become a division administrator, you're an at-will employee, and you do a lot mm -hmm. more work with the legislature. Mm -hmm. You get more politics involved mm -hmm. in that. But from a technological standpoint, I liked being the division administrator because I could lead and apply some of the things I learned about mm -hmm. statistics and the background. My next question is, can you discuss the work by the legislature and the executive branch to put together the first school aid formula? I know you said that started a little bit before you, right. but kind of what you know of those early days and what that looked like. Sure. Part of the background, when I first came to work in the department, like I said, I was a director of a project doing an evaluation. Mm -hmm. Well, then I ended up writing another proposal, and that was to 
do a study with respect to the implementation of the new school aid formula. Okay. And I knew nothing about school finance at that time, nothing. And I always thought of all the different jobs and the areas I'd go into, finance, accounting <laughs> would be the last, would be the very, very last. But I ended up writing a proposal, we got it funded, and it was to look at the implementation of the new school aid formula of some of the unique things that were in there. Mm -hmm. And one of them was leveling down so that districts that were high spending actually bringing them down. And that okay. was a unique concept because you were actually, in a way, almost taking money away mm -hmm. from school district. But the late 60s, the early 70s, when I was in the process of implementing it, what was really driven, what drove it, were the equity lawsuits that were going on around the country. And probably the most notable is the California one, the Serrano Priest. And that was the one that occurred in the Holloway School District mm -hmm. and compared to the neighboring district where the quality of education was very different based upon the wealth of the communities. The Iowa legislators, in particular Del Stromer, a lot of credit. He looked forward and said, do we need to do something in Iowa because we've got the same situation mm -hmm. of what these lawsuits are about in the other states. California was Serrano Priest, Texas was Rodriguez, San Antonio, all of those were going on. That was occurring about 68 to 1970. So at that time, the Iowa legislature stepped up and said, we need to change the way we're funding schools and the way we're distributing state aid, and we need to remove that wealth bias that is there. Now, they may not have said it that directly, mm -hmm. but clearly the legislators knew that that's what needed to happen. And the school districts around the state, when the formula was implemented, they clearly said, like a council bluffs, did not have the property tax base to provide the same type of education as a West Des Moines. Mm -hmm. And so they said, we need something like this. And so that's how it really got started. I think it had a good foundation of some things that were already in place in Iowa. There just were not controls. Mm -hmm. And so the local wealth was still driving the quality of education in some communities. Do you have kind of a background in what funding system there was before the school aid formula? I know you said that local wealth was driving mm -hmm. it. Was it primarily property tax based and then some school aid? There was school aid. In fact, what they did is they distributed state aid to schools basically on an equal dollar amount per pupil. And I can't tell you the level of that, but that's basically how it was done. It was also based upon the amount of income taxes that were paid within that community that like 40% of it went mm -hmm. back to the local school district. So okay. there you had some wealth bias. Oh yeah. If you did have a uniform levy, they call it a millage rate at that time, and I think there was a uniform what, 20 mil levy. Okay. And today, if you take $5.40, that's the 20 mil levy. It's 20 times 27, because one oh. mil is 27 cents. So that's how you get the $5.40 today. So there were some attempts in there, mm -hmm. but it was distributed based upon, now we do a certified enrollment, mm -hmm. and you can do forward funding. Well, mm -hmm. that was based upon fall enrollment. And so it was almost after the fact of what you were doing the you couldn't do the planning that you can now on budgets and so on. You said you did a project looking at that initial, how that implementation looked. What did that look like? Well, what they did, when they started the formula, they took all, every district's expenditures, mm -hmm. total expenditures, 
and they divided it by the number of pupils. Okay. And what you had is you had districts that, say, had high transportation costs, and you had districts that were spending a lot more because they could. You had a whole variety in there. Mm-hmm. So the expenditures per pupil really varied across districts. Well, to equalize that, or at least to start to equalize that, they said after having calculated this expenditure per pupil and then called it the average, statewide average, the state cost per pupil, any district that was 10% above the state cost was brought down to 10% above. So if you were 20% above, you would be brought down to 10%. If you were below the state average, you were brought up to the state average. Now, I'm oversimplifying this a little bit because when they did the initial calculation, the next year they decided they hadn't done it correctly. They didn't include some stuff in those expenditures that were probably not appropriate to do this type of calculation. They weren't just all general fund. They were including okay. expenditures for capital and some okay. stuff like that. So, so some re- of those things that would have been covered by their PEPL or uh, some today, other, yeah. Right, right. So okay. they removed all that, recalculated the expenditure per pupil, and then they started out with a new state cost, a new district cost. Then okay. they froze that. Then the next year they said you get a $45 per pupil increase, and again they did that squeezing mm-hmm. in there. And do you know what year that was? Probably 1971 or two would be my guess. If there was something about the current school aid formula that you could change or that you think would be useful to adjust, what do you think that would be? I think one of the biggest problems we have today is not equity but adequacy. And I think that that's an overall problem with the school aid formula is the adequate amount that is generating or providing school districts. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a whole lot of things behind that, but that's one of the major Mm -hmm. issues. The other one, the school aid formula needs to be district cost per pupil, state cost per pupil need to be recalculated. For instance, transportation costs should be removed. At one time, the formula was sort of self-compensating for transportation. Mm -hmm. Districts that had high transportation costs at the beginning continue to have high costs per pupil. Therefore, they were generating more money, mm-hmm. and transportation did not have a negative impact on the dollars available to educate children. Today, since the, it's so equalized and all district costs are within 5% or less of each other, mm-hmm. transportation then has a disequalizing effect. So it probably either needs to be recalculated or transportation needs to be removed and funded separately. That leads into that next question is what do you see as the largest ongoing challenge for school districts, something that maybe always been a problem and is still ongoing or something that's arisen in in the last 10 years? Still go back to adequacy has Mm -hmm. come up the most over the last 10 years. The other part is there's lots of different ways to fund schools and having a philosophy of how they should be funded is part of it and you want that formula to reflect the philosophy. And I think you need a balance of state and local, and you need some flexibility so that the state portion and the local portion should remain in balance so there's a commitment at the local level. If either one gets out of balance, I think you lose what drives the formula and keeps it healthy at the local level. And right now, we're tending to put all state money in on that 
modified allowable growth. I guess it isn't called modified allowable growth anymore. State supplemental aid. State supplemental aid. SSA. <laughs> That's all state money and no property. Now, I understand the property tax arguments in that. But there's the other side of having local flexibility. And for years, the formula always allowed for the local community to exercise some control over the funding of education in that community. But it was limited. So you had the enrichment levy, the instructional support. Well, if you look at it today, almost 100% of the districts and maybe 100% of the districts do have the instructional support levy. So you don't really have a local flexibility anymore where you may live in a district that the community really, really wants to do some unique things for education, so they'd like to be able to put another 10% in. And it's not wealth-based, it's just that the community desire to do it. We've lost that, just simply because the districts have used up that flexibility to maintain their districts as opposed to enhancing and improving their districts. So I see those as some of the issues. What do you think is the largest new challenge, maybe something that hasn't been ongoing for a long time, but it's something that's arisen in more recently? Besides adequacy. Besides adequacy. <laughs> I think the distribution of the population in Iowa makes for a challenge, where the rural areas continue to lose population, and there's a limit to how far you can transport children. So what type of system do we need to maintain a good quality rural education system across the state that's still primarily rural in there? I just see that as an ongoing challenge. And it isn't just reorganization, it's a whole variety of things that have to be considered. In your opinion, what was the most important project or initiative that you worked on or oversaw while you were at the Department of Education? Let me first say in the area of school finance, when I first started working in the area of school finance, there wasn't much modeling done. And I found that modeling is key to understanding how schools are financed and for planning. Mm -hmm. So we use SAS and SPSS. I know you probably use SAS here. Oh, we use SAS and Excel. Okay. And so being able to model and look ahead for five years for any changes in the school finance format, that was one of the things that I was a strong believer in, did it myself, did a lot of the modeling early on and encouraged people to do that, so we always had staff to do it. But in terms of the most, I would say, significant issue or project that I worked on, you ever heard of Project Easier? Electronic Access System for Iowa Education Records. When I started the department, we, like I said earlier, we collected everything on paper, the department did. And I came into the department with a background in information technology, computer science, all the way back to the 80 column cards, mm -hmm. the Hollowith cards in there. And not only did we collect information on paper, then we'd key punch it and do all that, and then we'd send all that information to Washington, D.C. on paper again. <laughs> so one of my goals was to automate as much as possible. Well, to make a long, long, long story short, we moved from that paper collection to a fully automated one by collecting individual student records in the department, which then gives you all the information you need in terms of characteristics of the students, what courses they're taking, so you know the curriculum in a school district. It allows you to do reporting at the federal level. We built in the 
privacy of FERPA was all of that. That overall project of coming up with a concept of you need to have a unique student identifier. Every student in the state has a student identifier. So if you move from one district to another, your record follows you. When you go from a high school to a college or university, your transcript is now sent electronically via the student record. That all came from wow. my initiative. When did that happen? Oh, that probably started 1989, 90. Um, I'm trying to think. Condition of Education Report. You know what mm -hmm. that is? Yep. Okay. Dave Albert and I started the Condition of Education Report in 1989. Okay. So we probably started probably 1995 is really when we moved in the direction of trying to get the funding to create a statewide student information system for data collection. Okay. That to me is one of the things that kind of changed the whole approach of data collection, storage, access, reporting, and gives you so much power to do analysis. And there's some pretty good databases out there now. I read the Condition of Education report every year. <laughs> I was active at the federal level, national level. So mm -hmm. National Center of Education Statistics, National Forum of Education Statistics. In fact, I was the chair of the National Forum of Education Statistics. The National Center of Education Statistics produced a condition of education report for the nation. And I thought, we need something exactly mm -hmm. like that. And it kind of became the Bible of mm -hmm. information for legislators. You get good access, and I'm a strong believer in having access to good information helps decision making. It increases mm -hmm. your odds of making better decisions if you know the facts and can see what the trend lines are. Do you think, so that condition of education report, do you think that if they started over from scratch tomorrow, do you think the outcome would be different? Do you think you would come up with something drastically different than what you came up with then? Or do you think it's kind of been a natural change? I think that it's been a natural change because there are certain basic facts or statistics you want to know about education in Iowa. And it might be as simple as the number of students and the trend line. It might be the characteristics of those students. It might be the characteristics of the teachers. It might be the average salary of the teachers. The distribution of salaries by the size of school district. Expenditures, where do districts spend their money? There's a series of things that are, in my opinion, basic questions that are always going to be included. The one that is probably the most difficult to report is the academic achievement of students and to be able to report that in a manner that's very descriptive without building any biases. I think the only difference today versus when we did, we started, we did a paper copy. Mm -hmm. Today you could do everything electronic mm -hmm. as long as you're thinking ahead of how you're going to access that five or ten years yeah. from now. Were there any other major changes you saw in your time at the department? Probably over time, I think politics became more evident and by the time I retired compared to when I was first working. I'm not just saying the Iowa legislature, I'm saying politics in general at a national level was having an impact on education. And so you could see the political influences and you could see more of the writings in the research magazines and national journals and so on as the role that politics was playing. That was one. Probably the technology and the role of technology in the department changed tremendously. Like I said, from a Hollerith card to today, mm -hmm. everyone has a laptop and you probably have more things on your phone than we had back then. <laughs> so that has changed a lot over time. Mm -hmm. It should. I mean, technology should be playing a significant role. When I first started, there were hardly any computer terminals. 
in the, the people on what we call the second and the third floor. The only computer terminals were down in the data processing area, and there weren't very many. Mm -hmm. And the programming languages were primitive, and yeah. it has changed a lot. Yeah. Well, that was my last question. Do you have anything else you want to add? I would say that I enjoyed work tremendously. I enjoyed my career at the Department of Education. I miss the people, still miss the people. Like I said, I retired in 2006. I failed at retiring. I went back to work for a <laughs> private company. Retired again. I failed one more time. I went back to work three times. So I, so I'm retired now. Finally. I, I finally caught on. <laughs> well, thank you very much for coming and speaking with You're me today. You're welcome.